You are listening to The Airing Cupboard, the podcast where the extraordinary stories of ordinary people get an airing. Phew, that's a mouthful. Hello and welcome back into The Airing Cupboard. Another two weeks have passed. Blimey. And we are just about halfway through the second series of the Erin Cupboard's Extraordinary Stories of Ordinary People. And still, I cannot pronounce my own strapline. I hope you are all very well. I am excited to be able to welcome three new listening countries on this little platform. That's Libya, Tunisia and Denmark. Also, a very big hello to our American and Canadian neighbours from across the pond who are listening in higher numbers every week. There is someone out there that is sharing the air and cupboard with their friends and you know who you are. And from me to you, a very, very big thank you. Okay, doki, enough geographical rumblings, Zoe, and on with the story. So this one was given to me by a gentleman in Belgium with whom I was put in touch. I was told that he had an amazing story to tell. However, it is not one that belongs to him. It is a story that has been told over two or three generations in a village in the Belgian Ardennes. He told me the tale over a phone call and he gave me a few details and names. And so from there, my interest was piqued. And of course, I wondered if it was just a legend or if there was any truth behind it, as the events go back to almost 70 years. So I put my research head back on. And I found two separate reliable sources mentioning this very story. Some of the details differ, but they both are depicting the same events names, dates, and places. So here it is. And please remember that the detailing of the descriptions of places or feelings are born out of my own imagination for the sake of storytelling. This tale takes place in Flamierge, a small village a few kilometers west of Bastogne in the Belgian Ardennes. Flamierge is a peaceful and sleepy little place, made of a few farms, a church. It is surrounded by green paddocks, dotted with cows, and the depth of the Ardennes forest are not too far. But on this 29th of December 1944, Flamierge is all but sleepy and peaceful. For the last 13 days, the countryside has been echoing night and day with the roaring combats of what is now known as the Battle of the Bulge. The German forces have managed to push through the American lines in an unexpected counter-offensive. They have regained control of territory that Allied force had fought and liberated from German occupation only a short while before. 
and Flamierge and its neighboring villages are in the midst of it. And in this short time, the sleepy little place goes from being occupied to liberated, to be occupied again. The villages have been transformed into battlefields once again, this time targeted by Allied artillery, as the enemy forces are hiding in their houses, their farms, their barns, their cellar, in their walls. And on that bitterly cold 29th of December 1944, Flamierge is still spared, but the front line is only two kilometers away and the sound of the battle travel fast on the cold winter wind. And in one of Flamierge's barn, amongst his reduced herd of cows, stands Amant du Buisson. He likes it there, next to his animals, in the cushioned atmosphere of the cowshed. The heat of the beasts and the constant ruminations communicate some sort of sense of peace and comfort to him. There he stands amongst what has always been, trying to block out all the madness going on further outside. He puts his hand on the flank of his favorite cow and through the warm skin of the animal he feels the gurgling of the belly, always busy. And he looks at her udder, filling up nicely and the vein protruding on its surface. What a good girl he thinks, never failing to produce milk, even now through these troubled times. He knows how fortunate he is to still have his animals. There is words that a lot of the neighboring villages on the front line have lost all their stocks during the last 13 days. The utter madness of war Things, Amon. He had been too old to be conscripted this time, but he had known all right the atrocities of war, the other war, the one they call the Great War, only 30 years ago. And he remembers how his entire unit had been made prisoners in 1914, right at the very start and he had been sent to Germany. First to a camp. Food was scarce and conditions depleting vital energy in even the fittest of men. But the German troops on the front needed food and all the young men were away fighting. Just the old women and children were left to tend to industry, fields, so he had been sent further into Germany, beyond the great river Rhine, close to Nuremberg, to work the fields in the village of Frimmersdorf. He had spent four years there, the four years of the war, four years of his life. And gosh, it was a lot better than being in the camp. Of course, the work was relentless and conditions were harsh and there were guards, but there was food and there were safe places to sleep 
and rest after a long day laboring in the fields. And the local population had strangely welcomed the arrival of this deported workforce in the midst of a war they didn't really understand, one that seemed to be fought in countries they didn't really know, discussed and masterminded in spheres that didn't really concern them, one that took away the husband, the son, the brother. Amon had made his life in Frimmersdorf during those four years of captivity. It had become his normality, his reality. And he had slowly learned the local dialect and quickly he was able to converse fluently with the locals. And against all the odds, he couldn't fight against his desire to tend to the earth, the soil, with care and attentiveness. In his hometown, in the Belgian Ardennes, he had always been an excellent farmer. And so even here, working on the enemy fields, he had put great pride in his work. And the locals recognized it. And of course, there was the young Kurt. The boy was only six when Amon had arrived in Fremersdorf. He remembers the very first time he had seen him standing in his short trousers on the roadside, watching the group of prisoners leaving for the fields early morning. His mother had ushered him back inside the house, but he was back the next morning and the one after that. And Amor would wink at him and the boy would smile. And as the months turned into years, as the great war dragged with its ruthless destruction, as the clothes of the woman and old man of the village gradually turned black with sorrow and mourning, the locals grew closer to the prisoners, treating them with respect and kindness, perhaps silently hoping that 500 kilometers west, beyond the Rhine, someone would be doing the same thing for their son, husband, brother. And the little Kurt started spending more time with the prisoner, calling him Monsieur Amant, the French way. The boy would sometimes be bringing him some extra food or milk in the barn where he slept. And Amant would tell him stories of his village. He would sing him songs would teach him a few words of Wallon, his own dialect, and he would tell him about the beauty of the deep forests of his beloved Ardennes. And the boy would listen, eyes full of images. One day, I will go there, had said the boy. And Amon remembers that late afternoon in July, as he was walking back from the fields, exhausted. The boy had run to catch him up, to walk by his side. And Amor had felt the little hand of the child slipping into his, the softness and warmth of his palm against his own callous skin. 
The child didn't look at him, but straight ahead. And Amon remembers. It was about the same time the boy's mother had started wearing black. And now, standing in his stable, 30 years later, next to his cows, he wonders about the absurdity of war and the madness of men. The Germans are particularly on edge this 29th of December 1944, as a large group of civilians has arrived earlier that morning from a neighboring village, Mont Saint-Étienne. They had been told to evacuate immediately before 9 a.m. and retreat further back. The front is moving constantly. And so the group arrived with only the shirt on their backs in the biting wind, scared and hungry. The villagers of Flamierge have taken them in, welcoming them in the house and barns, feeding them with bread and milk. But the sudden arrival, the presence has unnerved the German troops. No one is staying with Amand Dubuisson, his farm being slightly out of the village. He is looking around him, thinking there is plenty of room in his cowshed if more were to arrive. But suddenly, his thoughts are interrupted. A great commotion outside, boots running on the road, German shouting loudly, a great sense of urgency. A little later, Amon hears that the German soldiers have found a stash of American guns and ammunition, mostly grenades hidden in a barn of the village. Well, this find in itself shouldn't really be suspicious because the Americans had probably left them behind while they were here in Flamierge before the German counter-offensive. But the discovery of the weapons amidst the new arrivals from Mont Saint-Étienne creates huge suspicion. Straight away, the Germans start speaking about front and partisans. Nine men are arrested immediately. They are rounded up into the forge, a machine gun directed onto the door. They are kept there all afternoon. Later on that night, as Amon comes out of his barn, he sees a large group approaching his farm. He recognizes the nine captives, heads bent down shivering in the biting wind, German soldiers framing them with guns. One is carrying the machine gun. The officer in charge tells Amon they are seizing his farm to conduct interrogations. He leads the group into his house. Amon is asked to cook some broth under the watch of two German soldiers while the interrogation takes place in the room beside. The two soldiers sit at the kitchen table and relax and stretch their legs under the table. One even takes his cap off. Amon busies himself at the stove. That is when the two soldiers crack a joke between them in their own language. And Amon recognizes instantly the dialect from Frimmersdorf, 
He hasn't spoken it for thirty years, but to their amazement, Amon turns back and addresses them in their own German dialect. The soldiers are stunned. How on earth can this Belgian farmer not only understand, but converse in the dialect of their hometown? And Amon explains. He explains about the four years spent during the Great War, 30 years before, tending the fields, 500 kilometers east, beyond the Great River Rhine, in Frimmersdorf. He explains how he had picked up the dialect while working there. He explains about the fields, the barn where he used to sleep, the locals, and he even explains about the boy. And at that very moment, one of the soldiers, the one who had taken his cap off, stands up, his wooden chair screeching on the stone floor. And he looks at Amon, there, in front of the stove, only a few steps away from him. And the soldier just says, Monsieur Amon, And as the soldier pronounces the words, Amon looks at him and suddenly and without the shadow of a doubt recognizes in his face, in his eyes, the boy of all those years ago, the little Kurt. the kitchen, in the small village of Lamierge, as the bloody battle of the Burge rages outside, two men are shaking hands, smiling to each other. And at that very moment, there are no enemies, no countries, just two friends, united by the bond of their callous hands and memories like an invisible thread of love, linking them both to the best of themselves, to humanity. What the story says, and it is detailed in the written sources that I found, is that the interrogation of the nine suspects ended very shortly after that. They were all released without any more questioning. Nine lives were spared on the back of a 30 years old friendship between a deported soldier and a boy. However, on the 1st of January 1945, three days after the release of the prisoners, Amand Dubuisson was amongst his cows in his barn when a bomb fell on top of his farm, obliterating all. Amon never survived the blast to tell the story himself. I cannot even find out if he had a family or children. Only a few days ago, I managed to trace the granddaughter of his neighbors. She had herself 
heard the story from Amon's niece, who has now passed away and only started speaking about the events in the very late years of her life. And again, I am confronted with the fact that if stories aren't shared while we are well and kicking, they disappear, leaving little trace. Et voilà. I hope you have enjoyed this story. I have found it fascinating to research. Please take time to rate and review The Airing Cupboard on iTunes and to follow us on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And most importantly, share it. I wish you all a very good two weeks and until we meet again in The Airing Cupboard. Goodbye. Just for